is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, a survey undertaken by the Water Watchdog finds the majority of respondents think water theft is still a big problem. And heat waves in the Hunter, grapes are ripening at lightning speed with the heat, so pickers are working around the clock. The past few weeks have been somewhat fast and furious. We, we started picking two weeks ago, um, which is quite early for us in the Hunter. The quality is looking really fantastic, which we're really happy about. The The dry weather of late has been really positive for ripening and um, minimising disease. There's pretty much nothing out there, which is exciting. You can always send us a text about any of the stories uh, on the program. 0467 922 684 is a number to text me here at the country. You, you might want to comment about this, the issue of uh, the water watchdog. 70% of the general public surveyed believe illegal water take was happening and 84% wanted stronger actions to combat the problem. A total of 1,600 people were surveyed, including 1,100 licence holders and 450 members of the public. The survey also found that 83% of water licence holders believe it's never okay to break the rules. Grant Barnes says since the Natural Resource Access Regulator was established in 2018 during the worst drought in Australia's history, uh, there were fears that water theft was widespread. And he says five years on, most who were surveyed still think water theft is a big issue. That's right. Um, those that we surveyed have the view that water theft remains an ongoing problem in New South Wales and they want more done to stop it. The survey that we conducted found that 70% of the general public believe illegal water take was happening in New South Wales and 84% of those respondents want stronger action to combat this perceived problem. So stronger action, so that's basically they're saying you know, they'd be happy if there were more court cases, that were, if there were more fines, those sorts of things happening to deter people. So the survey showed that people want a well-resourced and effective water regulator in New South Wales. They are supportive of NRA's operations and that view is both that of water licence holders, stakeholders we engage with and the general public. And generally they didn't want to see water theft happen at all, did they? That's right. Um, under no circumstances were those respondents comfortable with the knowledge of water theft occurring in New South Wales. Now, interestingly, the perception that water theft remains an ongoing problem is not the experience of NRA and our compliance staff. So out of every 100 properties that we visit, we typically find that 70 of those properties are fully complying with the rules. And about 25 of those 100 visited may have minor non-compliance issues that we work with those users to fix. So that means that only about five of the 100 properties that we visit encounter significant non-compliance of which water theft would fall into that category. And you've also taken, over the time that NRA has been established, there's been, you've had a number of cases, 38 uh, court cases for um, serious matters. That's right. And water theft is one that very much falls into uh, the category of serious 
non-compliance. And those 38 cases taken to the Land Environment Court or the local court typically results in convictions and the imposition of significant financial penalties. And in the last financial year, over 200? Over 200 enforcement actions of various kinds were taken by NRA. That's ranging from the issuing of fines to directions to stop work or to take remedial action uh, and legally binding agreements like enforceable undertakings. Uh, It was a busy year for us and it's important that border users understand that we have the technology through our Eyes in the Sky program to detect and surveil water theft. We have the mechanism to identify potential non-compliance and the taking of water that one's not entitled to. And we use that technology then to direct our enforcement officers on site to follow up. So it seems with uh, only about 5% you're finding uh, are a problem on farm. So is the message getting out there? Is is the culture changing? So I think the listeners may appreciate that back in 2017, before NRA was formed, there was widespread concern amongst the public of water theft, and there was plenty of evidence of that. The ABC themselves and the Four Corners program uncovered uh, activities that subsequently resulted in enforcement action being undertaken once NRA was established. Now, if we fast forward to to now and through the actions of NRA, we're confident that we are able to detect uh, matters of water theft and take the action that the general public expects of us to serve both as a specific deterrence to non-compliance, but also to get the message out generally that it is not worth taking water that you're not entitled to because you will be caught and NRA will follow up and take the appropriate action. And from the survey, water licence holders and the general public, you must feel confident now you have a social licence for enforcement. I think it's very clear from this survey result, and it's backed up by previous surveys that we've undertaken in past years, that the public uh, want a well-resourced regulator. They expect that regulator to take the action that it does in terms of enforcement. But that's not just the general public, Michael. It's also water users themselves and licence holders who value the work that NRA does and understands that when we're on farm and we determine that a user is fully compliant, that gives them a big tick and gives them the confidence that they're doing the right thing in what can be quite a complicated military environment to work in. Just on another matter, we know that over the uh, Christmas break or just before there were some concerns about water theft uh, by blueberry farmers on the north coast. Have you heard anything about that? Is there any compliance action? Are you looking into that at all? We are in receipt of information alleging uh, water taken up in the Nambucca Heads area. An investigation has commenced, but it is very early days and there's nothing that I can share as to the substance. I do, though, acknowledge that there are concerns that some environmental groups have regarding those activities and they can be assured that we are investigating um, this complaint and any others that may be forthcoming. Grant Barnes is the head of the Natural Resource Access Regulator. It's 13 minutes past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, fast and furious, that's how a hunter winemaker has described this year's harvest. But with a heat wave hitting the region, it's about to get even busier. Grapes are ripening at lightning speed with the heat, so the pickers are working around the clock. But Xanthi Hatcher is the chief winemaker at Agnew Wines, and she told Amelia Bernasconi the quality of this vintage has been impressive. The past few weeks have been somewhat fast and furious. We we started picking two weeks ago, um, which is quite early for us in the Hunter. The quality is looking really fantastic, which we're really happy about. The the dry weather of late has been really positive for ripening and um, minimising disease. There's pretty much nothing out there, which is exciting. Um, Yields have been down a little bit, um, but all in all, we're very, very happy. Those yields being down a smidge, does that just come back to the heat? Or, yeah, can you pinpoint that to anything or just the way it's fallen? Uh, Put it down to probably the past few years that we've had. We've had um, some very wet years, um, a lot of uh, waterlogging in the vineyards and just lower um, kind of nutrient levels in the soil. So the vines just aren't don't have all the resources to put out a big crop this year. The heat wave is upon us. What does that mean to grape picking? Uh, Apart from the pickers themselves being very unhappy in the heat, um, heat is very good for ripening. Um, It means that um, you know, things ripen nicely and we get things off when we, with a nice level of, um, you know, flavour and sugar ripeness and it's generally good. Does it mean you have to pick around the clock because you've got more and more ready? Definitely, yeah. So we do a bit of machine harvesting uh, in the evening when the grapes are nice and cool. And then as soon as the sun comes up, we jump straight into hand picking. Uh, so when the weather's warm like this, we pretty much start picking and, and don't stop until all the fruit's in. Is there some kind of production line of the morning where all your pickers come in, they slip, slop, slap, they, I don't know, what's, what is it like when everyone knows it's going to be 40-something? I imagine <laughs> the mood is a little different, but yeah, I don't know, is there that kind of production line to prepare everyone to be out and, and be sun safe too? Uh, absolutely, yeah. It's, it's a long day for the pickers, so they'll start really early, um, definitely have to get their sun cream on and keep the water up. Um, but we get large teams, get them out early um, and try to get them in uh, all the fruit picked before the midday sun kind of hits. And so if it's left too long, like, is there a risk or how is the picking team this year? You mentioned, you, you know, you really try and get those numbers and I know there's been challenges in, in years gone by, but have you got enough people to get everything in before the heat is, becomes a bad thing? Um, I would say we have just enough this year. There's a few crews working throughout the Hunter um, and as long as you book in advance and as long as you know what you're going to do and plan ahead um, we've had some really good teams and they've done a really great job so the whites are nearly finished what's yeah what's the quality been like for that um as the the winemaker what do you think uh this vintage is going to taste like once it's bottled um we've been really happy with quality um the chardonnay and the semillon are looking really lovely uh the warmer weather that we've had recently has given them beautiful flavor but um, because we had kind of milder um, conditions late last year, they they were able to retain some nice acidity as well. So um, they're looking great. And the reds? 
The reds are looking fantastic. Um, they're ripe um, and they're in great condition. We have beautiful canopies, so we're really, really excited about having a good red vintage. At this early stage, can you sort of pick whether something that you bottle from this vintage is going to be award-winning? I mean, you know, you're always striving for excellence, of course, but there's a lot out of your control with the weather and different things. But, yeah, I don't know. Any early indicators of something that is going to be really special from this year? Um the Chardonnays look fantastic. We've got our first few that are fermenting in oak now and we tasted some of them yesterday and they look lovely. Um, but I have to say I'm probably most excited about the reds. Um, we haven't picked any yet. We start picking on the weekend, but just the way that they're looking on the vine and, and the flavours they have when we sample them, um, I think it's really promising. Santhi Hatcher is the chief winemaker at Agnew Wines and she was speaking there to Amelia Bernasconi while staying with wine and the New England Vineyard is expecting a good vintage ahead of picking next week at Toppers Mountain near Tingar. The weather's been just right with uh, grapes ready to come off the vines. Owner Mark uh, Kirkby told Lara Webster that he's uh, happy with what he's seeing. The Sauvignon Blanc, he said, is looking lighter though in yield. Oh, the vintage has been been good so far. Um, you know, it was the last couple of weeks leading up to Christmas was a bit wet, but um, other than that, it's been been perfect conditions. Really, it's been been an excellent um, season, and uh, there's some there's some pretty good fruit out there that um, we're hoping we can get off pretty quickly. What are you expecting to see from this vintage, Mark Kirkby? How do you think it's going to shape up? Well, that depends really what happens in the next three weeks. If it um, if we just get normal amounts of rain for the next three weeks, um, we'll be good. It'll be be excellent. And if it um, if we start to get big licks of rain because of cyclones and things like that, well then it, you know it might be a very different view of the world. Yeah. And what about the heat? How's this going to play into things? We know uh, we're expecting some more extreme temperatures this week. Uh, looking at the latest forecast, but how is that going to play into things as well? We haven't had any really hot weather yet. I mean, we've had a lot of, you know, 30 to 33 days, which is, which is perfect. That's fine. You know, and if we get, if we get a, a few 35-degree days, in fact, we got one yesterday, yeah, that won't be a big issue because there's, there's so much moisture in the soil from all the rain that that won't trouble the vines at all. And tell me, what are you picking first? What's first off the list? First, um, first cab off the rank is, um, is the... Uh, so Blanc off the Hill of Dreams, and uh, I mean normally we'd pick the Hill of Dreams. It's got three varieties on it: Sauv Blanc, Verdejo, and uh, and Grunefeldlena. Normally we'd pick them together and um, and and, and co-ferment them together, but the Sauv Blanc is so far ahead of the other two this year, partly because it's yields down a bit that um, we're going to have to pick it separately and then pick the other two separately and ferment them, and then blend them. Has that simply been the season driving that that change? Yeah, partly the season, but also we've um, the, the, the Hill of Dreams is we've been farming it organically for about five or six years, and we missed getting our composted cow manure from Rangers Valley on there last year for various reasons, and I think part of the low low yield we're seeing is a result of of, of that you know a bit short on nutrition this year. What sort of figures are you looking at? Uh, there's probably four tonnes to the hectare, and for a white like that, there should be seven or eight, so that's probably 50% of where it should be. 
And so hoping the other varieties will, will make up the, the difference? Well, the other varieties have got, got plenty on them, so, so they'll make up the difference. There's no doubt about that. And we've subsequently, we've, we've got the, the, the compost on, but it's, you know, it's only a month or so ago. It's too late to really make any significant difference. Mark Kirkby, we've spoken a lot over the years uh, on Toppers Mountain Wines and the journey. How far have things come from where you began? Well, a long way. We've um, made three years ago at the start of um, at the start of COVID. We we committed to, to building a new cellar door, and that's just about finished. That's been a bit of a <laughs> it's been a, <laughs> been a bit of a journey. You know, we thought it would take us twelve or eighteen months, and here we are, a bit over three years later. <laughs> We're still at it. <laughs> What's it like to at least finally see that cellar door coming to oh, fruition? That's fantastic. It, um, yeah, it'll be it'll be ready to roll. We're, we're, we're final inspection with the council will be um, next week, hopefully, and uh, and that'll be it. We'll be underway. What but, um, what sort of difference will that make to the operation going forward? I think it'll allow us to do you know to do much more of the you know direct to customer type marketing um, you know for events. And we've got two weddings booked now already for this year and that's before we've even been out there to to, to try and promote it. Top of the Mountain Vineyard owner Mark Kirkby speaking there to Lara Webster on the Country Hour. It's 22 minutes past 12. Well, it's been a challenging 2023 for Port Macquarie's winemaker Casa Grande Wines following a difficult four years which saw the business contend with bushfire damaged stock, the economic fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic and hefty tariffs Based on wine exports to China, they filed for voluntary administration in June of last year. But the 40-year-old Casa Grain has bounced back with new investors breathing life into the business and a great harvest underway. Philippe Casa Grain is the director of Casa Grain Wines and he told Tina Quinn that 2024 is already off to a cracking start. It's been really good, actually. It's um, yeah, been a, a pretty uh, challenging 2023, um, but now we're getting kick-started into 2024 and one of the best parts about the start of the year is that's when we have vintage or harvest so we're starting to get fruit or we're receiving fruit now and it's um it just adds a bit more excitement to to the around you know, around the business really and this year so have your suppliers changed at all where are you sourcing fruit from this harvest no so still sourcing fruit from around south wales from a lot of our existing suppliers and some new so the beautiful thing about um, the business is by being multi-regional, we can source fruit from different regions, so depending on the, you know, the fruit quality and, and varieties that are available kind of thing. So it's you know, some of our suppliers have had a bit of a challenging time with hail and frost, which makes it difficult for them. But the fruit we have seen so far has been very good quality, so it's exciting. With the sort of change in forecast and the weather conditions that the the country's been really grappling with and, and, and facing, we, we thought it was going to be a, a much drier summer than it has been. It was quite a dry winter earlier on, and now it's gotten quite wet. How is that affecting the grapes? Look, rain is great at the right time because um, at the end of the day, grape growing, oh, you know, it's farming. And um, so the weather does play a big part, but... Because of the history of, um, you know, everyone has a pretty good idea of what to do at certain times. So there are ways of mitigating against weather conditions, you know, in some way. We always say that the best wine comes from the best fruit. 
and you don't have the best fruit until it's you know, in the winery itself being processed because if you think you're ready to pick in, say, a few weeks' time um, and then all of a sudden the you know, rain comes unexpectedly, it can really delay the ripening, the final ripening stage or, um, you know, or add too much water to the berry itself and dilute the sugars. And so it's a bit of a balancing act. So we had some fruit come in that was picked probably a day before, or you know, a couple of days before it was earmarked to, but that was because of rain. And so just we changed our winemaking processes to kind of to to counteract that difference. And um, yeah, that's just the the joys of being quite weather dependent. Mm. And. You're an agritourism business. That can always present its own challenges, especially when economic times are tough. How has how's tourism been this last summer, these these last number of weeks during the holidays? Look, we're very fortunate that we're in, we are in a, in a quite a high tourist area in Macquarie. And um, look, it, it, it has shifted a little bit, but there's still plenty of people around just kind of doing some different things. So we're very fortunate that like we have a, just as we have a working winery, we also have that cellar door space and restaurant. And so people may be, you know, if they do change their drinking habits or retail habits, so to speak, they can still shift that into more of an experience space rather than just uh, buying a half a pallet worth of wine. <laughs> they might come and do tours and kind of the education piece. And so they're still, um, yeah, we're still getting consumers through and teaching them about wine. Uh, just might be a little bit different at times. Philippe Cassegrain is the director of Cassegrain Wines and he was speaking there with Tina Quinn. It's 26 past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Australia is introducing new fuel emission standards for light commercial vehicles like farm utes to bring us in line with Europe. The changes will roll out from late next year, but the National Farmers Federation says more work is needed to make sure that agriculture and rural communities are not disadvantaged. Emily Doak has more. From December 2025, new light vehicle models, including SUVs and utes, that are introduced to Australia will have to meet the Euro 60 emissions standards, while all new cars will have to comply by 2028. The government says this will bring Australia in line with 80% of the global car market. NFF President David Johinke is worried it might bring additional costs for agriculture. We see this as a very noble aspiration by government to try to reduce pollution from vehicles. And we understand that as time goes on, emission standards change, things change in general with how vehicles are manufactured. However, we've also obviously want to understand how this will be complied to uh, agriculture, especially around when we're requiring vehicles of a standard that um, most European cars don't deliver. Currently, to meet the European standards, some utes require the use of AdBlue, an additive which reduces nitrogen oxide emissions from diesel vehicles. Mr Joe Hinkey says farmers need assurance that there will be cost-effective and fit-for-purpose utes available when the new standards are introduced in Australia. Look, one of the most standard vehicles on a farm or in agriculture is the farm ute. And generally, if you compare it to, say, a land cruiser, which is a very standard vehicle across the nation, um, there is no comparative uh, alternative to that. 
there is no way that you can um, retrofit those vehicles to make them um, into those uh, emission standard um, types of uh, um, outputs, but more so, it's the actual cost that we're concerned of as well. We don't want this to be a cost burden on agriculture. We don't want to see people stranded out in the middle of the outback um, because they're not able to get AdBlue or don't have a charging station. Um, and we have to realise that liquid fuel uh, is something that we need, especially in remote areas. And what we want to hear is how we're we going to ensure that we've got all access to all the resources that we need to make sure we can um, service these vehicles, make sure we can uh, fuel these vehicles, and then let alone that these vehicles are equivalent to what we currently have and not imposing a greater cost on agriculture. But Southern New South Wales farmer Peter Holding from the lobby group Farmers for Climate Action says the changes don't go far enough. Well, there's two things operating here. One is the emission standards and one is the efficiency standards. And in Europe, they have tighter of both, and they're already talking about bringing in E7 standards, Euro 7. And so what that means is that if you import cars into Europe and they don't meet those standards, you'll pay a penalty, a tax. And at the moment, it's about you can import four reasonably efficient cars into Europe and you can avoid the tax by importing one zero-emission car, i.e. an EV. So all the EVs are going those markets with those standards. That's why we're not getting them here. Um, I was looking at um, utes that might be available and some are already in production but they won't be coming here for probably another four or five years because they won't have enough to counteract the European and American demand and we're not putting any pressure on them to send them here so they'll just keep sending the old stock. He argues the government also needs to set a clear direction for a transition to alternative fuels for farm machinery too. Requiring a ute is one thing, but trying to transition headers and tractors is another. I'm not sure that international constructors or manufacturers have yet decided in which direction they're going to go. I mean, they might go EV for heavy vehicles, they might go hydrogen, they might go ammonia or biofuels or whatever else. Still there's some clear planning and direction on this. It makes it very hard for farmers to know what they're going to do because if you go out this year and buy a million and a half dollar header, you want it to be still usable in 10 or so or more years. So you know, if all of a sudden diesel isn't available or the rules change, there's going to be a problem. I think people in, the, in rural Australia need to start agitating for a proper pathway to this because if they don't it is likely to get very messy by about 2030. Peter Holding from Farmers for Climate Action talking about those uh, changing fuel emission standards for light commercial vehicles and uh, even farm utes to bring us in line with Europe. Some concerns being raised here by the National Farmers Federation. It's 28 minutes to one. Shortly we'll uh, have the latest on the weather and uh, the ex-tropical cyclone. Is it going to head into New South Wales or what's going to be the situation there? We'll find out the latest from the Bureau. But uh, before we do that, we'll get some news headlines from Adam Story. Good afternoon. Afternoon. Uh, well, they've got the cyclone. We've got the heat at the moment. <laughs> That's right. The heat wave, yes. The heat wave. Yeah. Uh, next, so... for the next couple of days. We'll talk about the Bureau. Yeah, the Bureau. About that as well. Yep. 5k yep. already just <laughs> walking up the street this morning <laughs> <laughs> at a very very slow pace <laughs> right. uh in uh in the sydney suburb of blacktown they've actually set up special uh cooling shelters 
there's eight of them across uh, across the city uh, where people uh, they're air conditioned. Uh, there's cold drinking water and toilets as well. So, oh, right. wouldn't be surprised if you see more of those popping up around. Well, uh, the there's place. also people. The authorities recommend going to shopping, shopping centres centres, yeah. and also libraries. Yeah. Um, and things like that to just to cool yeah. off for a few hours. It's also yeah. getting to them it, can be well, that. <laughs> if you, if it's close drama. by, that's yeah. right, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Um, well, of course, being in regional areas, you know, it might be a long way to the shopping centre. Yeah. yeah, that's right, absolutely. Uh, but with those shelters, it sort of brought back images of Dubai with their air-conditioned bus shelters. Mm. And there's there have been a lot of complaints. A lot of bus shelters aren't. Mm. you got no protection mm. from the sun. Mm. Let alone the heat. Anyway. So, yeah, 50 degrees in Dubai. Was it, is that the... That's the 52 the or something in Dubai. I yeah. think it's the, it's the yeah. hottest place in the, on the earth at one point. Walk out into that with a hangover. You and your hangovers. I don't know. Oh, that was a long time ago. <laughs> Tropical cyclone Kiralee, as uh, we were talking about, that's now a Category 2 system. Uh, it's about 100 and, uh, packing winds of about 120k at the moment. Uh, it's expected to uh, hit around uh, Townsville uh, later tonight. Uh, the Federal Treasurer says he's received assurances from the Reserve Bank that the redesigned Stage 3 tax cuts won't add to inflation. Under the plan, it's believed the majority of Australian taxpayers will benefit from an increased tax cut. Uh, the opposition is today walking back its statement that it would uh, repeal them if they were, came into office and they would uh, look at Oh, them. they walked that back, did they? Yes, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. After a, there was... It's a pretty heavy criticism about, uh, well, say you're going to take the tax cuts off the lower income earners. <laughs> so I don't think that uh, that was a good look. So anyway. Uh, and uh, Jared Hayne is appealing his conviction for sexually assaulting a woman in her Newcastle home. And a woman has been charged with attempted murder after a crash. There was a crash in the Blue Mountains earlier in the week. A driver and a seven-year-old girl suffered severe burns. Uh, they've now charged a woman with attempted murder over that crash. And she was charged at a uh, bedside hearing at Parramatta Local Court today. Have you been up late watching and tennis? That was, and I was just going to say, that that actually caused traffic chaos. Yes, that's right. It, it was closed in both directions. Yeah. I think it was an early morning accident, mm. but it was uh, it closed both directions. For yeah. hours. Yeah. On the, on the, on the main highway. That's right. Yeah. 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 And actually, the, uh, luckily, uh, uh, there were other drivers who managed to pull the woman and the girl mm. from the... Um, Yes, from the burning wreck. Yes, yeah, no, I heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. No, I didn't watch the tennis, but I just it's, I saw it's, the highlights. It's getting and on I, a bit late. I mean, yeah. <laughs> 3.45 in the morning. Even this <laughs> night, Al can't, uh, can't last the Yes, and I was surprised Alcaraz was um, yeah. just... Yeah, but it just, it just... It gives everyone, every tennis player, heart that uh, even people like Alcaraz can have a bad day. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It just had a bad, really bad day, really yeah. bad... Uh, just nothing was right. Nothing went right. Basically, no. mm. um, do I see you on the national day tomorrow? Are you here? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. And right. you're here too. Well, there you go. I am now. No rest for the weekend, no. eh? All right. <laughs> well, we won't go sleep into... in, but no. <laughs> no, no. I'll see you here at twelve thirty. All right. Bright and early. Twelve thirty. Right. Right. It's uh, coming up to twenty-four minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details. Gabrielle Woodhouse is there. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. So pretty hot around the state, lots of 40s I see around the state for today. Yeah, indeed. It, very, very hot um, right across uh, the state. So we're expecting temperatures to get up about 40 degrees across the central west and uh, a few degrees warmer than that um, over the far northwest of the state. 
even uh, towards the coast through the Hunt, we're expecting temperatures to today to be in the high 30s, but tomorrow is going to be a little bit warmer ahead of the change coming through. So it, at this stage, that um, cooler change is going to start moving through the far south later tonight, but uh, it'll reach towards the central areas um, of the state tomorrow afternoon. So expecting it to, to get through to, towards the Hunter uh, by late tomorrow afternoon and uh, continue through to the northeast on Saturday. So unfortunately, between now and then, we've got very hot conditions persisting and tonight's uh, overnight minimum temperatures are going to be quite awful um, for, for most areas uh, across the central and, and north of the state with those overnight minimums in, in the 20s. So through parts of the Hunter tonight, we're expecting minimum temperatures around 25, 26 degrees, up through parts of the northwest slopes and plains, again, 24, 25 degrees, and even up towards Burke, 28 or 29 degrees for the overnight minimum tonight. So very warm, very uncomfortable, um, but we will see those temperatures cool off um, in the wake of that change uh, during Friday and into Saturday. Right, and um, no no reprieve until later on for the northeast and and northwest, I gather. Yeah, it does take a bit of time for that change to reach through to the northeast and and the northwest. So at this stage, it's more likely Saturday that we'll see um, those conditions start to cool off. But uh, through the weekend, it is still going to remain quite warm through parts of the northwest with those uh, temperatures remaining around high 30s to low 40s. Um, so quite warm, and with that we are expecting some showers and thunderstorms, uh, mainly about the northern ranges um, during Saturday and Sunday, where we could be seeing some uh, uh, the, the risk of some of those storms becoming severe. Right, OK. And, uh, and, and when's that's over the weekend, is it? That is over the weekend. Tomorrow there is still the chance of some storms um, more broadly across the northern inland down through towards Sydney and the Hunter. There's a chance that we could see some pretty gusty winds with those storms if we do see them develop later in the afternoon. So that's one to watch out for, particularly around the Hunter tomorrow afternoon. Okay, and looking further ahead, so um, the ex-tropical cyclone is heading, is it going to head to New South Wales or that seems to be less likely now? Look, it's a little bit less likely now. So um, we have been seeing those models change over, over the course of the last few days. So currently we're expecting uh, Tropical Cyclone Kiralee to, to move towards Townsville tonight and then continue moving further west through the interior of Queensland um, and start to weaken during Friday and Saturday. So at this stage, um, our best guidance is indicating that that system is going to remain over uh, far western parts of Queensland or maybe even moving towards the Northern Territory over the weekend. And there's only one or two models that are suggesting that it could move a little bit further south. So it's definitely one that we're keeping a close eye on, but at this stage, it's more likely that it'll remain up through parts of Queensland and the Northern Territory rather than come and affect uh, the northern parts of New South Wales. So it may sort of clip the northern parts of New South Wales there or maybe into the northwest corner or, uh, but, you know, more likely to be, um, uh, you know, western Queensland and Northern Territory now. Yeah, we are expecting it to be uh, more, more so a little bit further north up through western Queensland and in towards the Northern Territory. Um, in saying that, we are still going to be expecting some showers and storms about the northeast and uh, around the northern slopes and, and ranges there, um, particularly during Saturday and Sunday when we could be seeing some localised heavy falls and, and the risk of flash flooding as well as some damaging wind gusts or some hail. So that's one thing to watch out for. Um, for this weekend up through the northwest slopes and plains and the northern ranges. Right, okay, so they might still cop a bit of bit of weather, a bit of rain. Yeah, and, and also it's going to be associated with thunderstorms, so it'll be a short, sharp burst in terms of that rainfall um, and that the risk is really going to be um, with flash flooding considering that we have been seeing some reasonably wet conditions um, over the last month or so um, with those storms that we've been seeing.
But we're not sort of talking 100 millimetres or anything like that. It's just sort of like a storm here and there. A storm here and there. Um, in saying that, we still could be seeing like a decent drop of rain with some of these storms and, you know, uh, seeing of the order of, you know, 20, 30, 40 millimetres fall over the space of half an hour with the storms on the weekend. Um, it's just a matter of being caught underneath one of those storms to, to see that rainfall eventuate. Okay, but uh, obviously you're still watching the modelling and seeing what's happening because things can change, I know. So, we're, yeah, we'll just keep an eye on that one, eh? Indeed. Mm, okay. Gabrielle, thanks for that. My pleasure. Gabrielle Woodhouse at the Bureau there. It's uh, coming up to 19 to 1. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Is there anything farmers like more than talking about the weather? Well, there's now a unit at the Bureau of Meteorology dedicated to providing weather and advice to producers and growers. The Bureau has come in for criticism of late over its forecasts and the new Agriculture Decision Support Team will aim to improve long-term forecasts for agribusiness decision-making. Meteorologist Jonathan Howe told Fiona Broom the team will gather information from farmers and International Weather Bureau to provide climate and weather insights. Yes, yeah, so I'm part of a new agriculture decision support team here at the Bureau. Uh, it's a small team, it's just two, two meteorologists, but we're a brand new team at the Bureau and dedicated to um, working with the agriculture industry. Um, we're not agronomists, but we do work very closely with agronomists and other advisors. And we actually do have an agronomist within our team um, in, in the agriculture team as well. So we work very closely with the industry to um, assist farmers in making decisions throughout the throughout the year. So whether that's um, sowing and planting or whether it's harvesting as well, we help to um, provide a bit of insight and knowledge into the climate outlook for, for growers as well. And that does include also things like um, humidity, uh, particularly um, for industries like the grain industry as well. So we're a brand new team. Um, we'd we love to we'd love to get out and uh, chat, to, chat to growers out there through Victoria and across the rest of the country. Um, but yeah, we're a dedicated team um, and very much looking forward to seeing what we can do as we work to, together with the agriculture industry. So you are a new team. You may, though, have already encountered a bit of uh, frustration with, from some producers who say that um, El Nino predictions from, from last year, of course, them some problems within their business. How do you sort of go about addressing that and, and working with producers mm. and growers? Exactly. That's exactly right. So we definitely understand that uh, many growers would have been expecting a hot and dry summer. In some places, particularly in, the Western, in Western Australia and central parts of the country, that has occurred. But as you move towards the eastern states, Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, have, also, have of course seen a lot of rainfall and flooding over the last few months. And that, of course, is part of the challenge of some of this long-term forecasting. So our team looks at firstly, a range of different international models. So when we produce these, our, our briefings and outlooks, we look at we look beyond what the forecast is saying and try to give a bit more insight into what some of the other global international climate models are saying and give a bit of a, another perspective of what that might mean. So um, particularly as we've seen these, these large thunderstorm outbreaks across eastern parts of the country, we look beyond things like El Nino and to other climate drivers such as the Southern Annular Mode to kind of tie everything together uh, in terms of impacts for agricultural communities. So really w working together to provide a bit more insight. Farmers say better communication between the Bureau, agricultural industries and emergency and government bodies could help boost farmers' trust in Australia's weather predictions. 
Eastern Victoria livestock producer Chris Nixon says farmers in the region have turned to international forecasting bodies to plan their daily operations. Well, the issue we have is that the farmers I talk with have basically lost confidence in the ability of the Bureau to be reasonably accurate in what they're forecasting. As a result, we have farmers now, I I personally use a weather map from Finland, others use Japanese, others use Norwegian, others use the USA. To give you an example, the, the, the Finnish one I've been watching gives rain increments in four hour blocks for the day. It seems to be reasonably accurate on how much rain we get. It's not quite so accurate on the time of day it's, it is, but it's interesting that you know all we get is a range, a percentage in a range from the Met Bureau. So it's very hard to, to have confidence about what the hell's going on. In terms of long-range forecasts, have you had a chance to test uh, some of those other international models yet? The Finnish one does give long-range forecasts, but I haven't had a chance to... I've only been watching it for the last month or so, so I haven't had a chance to compare what its long-range forecasts are uh, compared to the Mets. As time goes on, I'll, I'll learn to see what it's like. I'll compare the two as we go forward. With the Bureau's new Agriculture Support Unit, what do you think they need to take into consideration when they're thinking about their operations? We have farmers who are trying to do hay and silage and, and relying on the Met Bureau's forecasts on, on the windows of opportunity to do that. So accuracy is, is the greatest support they can do. I mean, we need accurate information. If they, if they don't, We don't need it translated. We just need the information. We can make our own decisions on whether what they're giving us is a, an opportunity or not. Automated flood watches and telling us that you're in for a minor, major flood heights, which are going to be changed. You know, we're all very upset by that. You know, farmers have been here for 100 years. We know what our flood levels are. Just give us the raw data. We can make our own decisions from what needs to happen from there. Cattle producer Chris Nixon speaking there with Fiona Broom. And earlier you heard from Jonathan Howe, who's a meteorologist in the Bureau's new Agriculture Decision Support Team. You might have some thoughts on that. You can send it to text 0467 is a number to text me here at the Country Hour. It's coming up to 13 minutes to one. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm Stephanie Smale. Join me for The World Today. The political debate is raging over changes to Stage 3 tax cuts, with the Treasurer claiming the move is putting people before politics. High winds and heavy rain start hitting the North Queensland coast as Cyclone Kiralee heads towards Townsville. And the United Nations says shells fired from Israeli tanks have hit one of their compounds in Gaza. Those stories and more coming up on The World Today. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, politically today, the focus is on the Albanese government trying to pull off the latest uh, policy shift in its first term, claiming that changed economic circumstances are forcing it to break an election promise not to change the coalition era stage three tax cuts. There's uh, also, uh, I understand, uh, the Prime Minister is addressing the press club uh, at the moment, just about as we speak. So he may be talking about that issue, but uh, something else that is on the agenda today as well. There are also hints that the government is also working with the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission to address the disparity between farm gate prices that the supermarkets are paying for fresh food, what they're paying to farmers and what consumers are paying at the checkout. This morning, Federal Treasurer Jim Chalmers spoke with Sabra Lane on AM about this issue. 
Now, you've been in talks with the competition watchdog chief, chief Gina Cascott-Lieb. Has she got all the powers that she needs to crack down on the supermarket giants? What else would she like to do? Uh, I don't think she does, and I've been in discussions uh, with her, really terrific discussions with uh, the ACCC chair, who's doing a, a wonderful job. We've had some very constructive conversations about what additional powers uh, she may need uh, to ensure that we get a fair go for families and farmers when it comes to our supermarkets, uh, and we hope to be able to say more about that really quite soon. In fact, it may well be the case that the Prime Minister will be addressing some of those issues about the ACCC and some sort of investigation of farm gate prices and supermarket pricing uh, today. Uh, so we'll bring you uh, the news on that on the Country Hour tomorrow or on ABC News later on today. It's uh, coming up to 10 minutes to 1 on the Country Hour. Well, to the latest on fire ants, and the good news is there's been no new nests found near the initial detection in the pod village at Wardell, south of Ballina, on the state's far north coast. The National Fire and Eradication Program is confident that the infestation can be contained and eradicated locally. But if more fire ants are found, then the story could change. The Program Manager, Graham Dudgeon, is speaking here to Kim Honan. We certainly don't like to see any outbreaks of ants anywhere, not just in New South Wales, but anywhere outside where the fire and incursion is, because it, it just means it makes the job bigger in terms of eradicating them from Australia. So the eradication aim is still eradication from Australia. What we can do with these smaller outbreaks, like the one we have here in Wardell, is do a local eradication. So we'll apply the same methodology we do to the bigger incursion in southeast Queensland, but we can do it much more concentrated and um, we can be fairly sure that we can eradicate them from here. And at this stage it's just been the one nest which has been detected at Wardell, no other infestations found, but, but could there be? Could this be the ground zero nest? Could it be elsewhere? So there's no, nothing been found outside of the, one, the first site where the nest was found in that garden bed and we're hoping that that is where it started. So that's what we might call ground zero. It's possible, but at this stage looking unlikely, that they've flown there from somewhere else in the area. But we're still doing our surveillance, so we do surveillance on every property um, out to half a kilometre from where they were first found, and that tells us whether or not that was ground zero or whether they're somewhere else. So we're in the middle of doing that right now. We also treat for fire ants while we're doing that. So we're putting bait out so that even if we don't find fire ants, if they are there, they will be destroyed by that bait. And there will be a program of more baiting over a period of time to be sure we've got all the ants. And when will that baiting up to the five kilometre zone mark uh, get underway? And will you be you know, dropping those baits by a helicopter? We will start that area between the 500 metres and the five kilometres when we finish the 500 metres. It will depend on weather, of course. So there's some wet weather this weekend and we won't be out there baiting. So the bait is affected by wet weather. So we can't bait after heavy rain and there's no point us baiting if it's going to get rained on. So dependent on those weather days, we will then get into the wider area out to five kilometres and areas like cane fields um, are really... Um, it's easier for us to do those from the air, so we will be using helicopters for that. How is the genetic, uh, the tracing going? Do we have any idea where the fire ants here came from? Very early days. It can take weeks for that to happen. And we may never get a direct tracing link, 
because it requires us to have samples of ants from the nests where they may have come from. And we can't have samples of every nest in southeast Queensland, so we may only be able to get down to a link to an area. We still haven't got the genetics that links it to southeast Queensland at all. We still need to have that. Now it's unlikely it came from somewhere else, but there have been other incursions in, around the country over the last 10, 20 years that did not come from southeast Queensland. Now this might be a too much of a political question for you regarding the funding, but uh, South Australia and Tasmania have not yet signed up to the national funding program. How important is it that those states get on board? We're always needing that full funding because we, to deal with this, it's a, it's a war against fire ants over a very large area. It needs a lot of resources, a lot of logistics and a lot of money. And more money than any other biosecurity response in this country's history has ever had. So we can understand it's difficult for treasuries to find the money and make it available, but we know they're working through that and please send the money. And given that there you know, has been more outbreaks and taking into account inflation, should that close to $600 million funding program be reviewed? It's constantly reviewed. So we have national governance that we report to. Uh, we give the governance so we're funded by every jurisdiction, uh, including the Commonwealth that pays half across the country. So they're all involved in reviewing strategically where we're at. And at any time, if we need to make adjustments, the, it goes through the governance committee. If one of those adjustments is we need a top of the money, well, that will be discussed at the time. Graham Dudgeon from the National Fire Ant Eradication Program. And uh, if you see any suspected fire ants, there's a number you can call to report them. That's the New South Wales Biosecurity Hotline. It's 1800 680 That's 1800 680 If you see what you think might be a fire ant, give them a call and let them know uh, because uh, they certainly want to get on top of uh, any further infestations. On the weather, uh, someone's texted in saying, um, uh, how can a uh, independent forecaster tell us what's happening for six months exactly what's happened and the bomb rejects uh, that sort of advice and those sort of computer models and the other uh, the other issue on the weather uh, someone's texted in saying not everywhere is having a heat wave the weather was a bit incomplete because they're getting light rain and 21 degrees at the moment in the bigger valley right now it's uh, coming up to five minutes to one And that's time for markets. Let's go to Wagga Sheep and Lambs and Leanne Dax. Good afternoon. The Wagga lamb sale showed strong demand despite the impending short trading week ahead due to the Australia Day holiday tomorrow. Agents offered a smaller offering of 28,750 lambs and 15,200 sheep. Although all the usual processes were present at the sale, not all major companies were in operation. Trade lambs are available in limited numbers and prices held steady, ranging from 130 to 170, with an average of 693 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Lambs weighing 22 to 24 fetched from 155 to 168. There was robust demand for heavy lambs from various buyers, although they were cautious about 
exceeding 700 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Lambs between 26 to 30 were firm and they ranged from 170 to 216, while those over 30 kilos fetched 215 to 158. Oh, sorry, 258. Store buyers were not as active and lambs returning to the paddock sold for prices ranging from $71 to 148. Hoggets saw intense bidding with the better finished ones selling between 100 and 195. With the sheep sale yet to commence, some Leanne ducks for MLA. Thanks, Leanne. Let's go to Dubbo Cattle now with the details. Here's David Monk. Numbers lifted by 500, free yarding at 3,390. It was a mixed yarding with good numbers of prime cattle in all sections, though the cow quality was not to the standard of the previous sale. There were also good numbers of Boss Indicus cattle and crossbred cattle mixed throughout the yarding. Young cattle of the trade were around firm with the prime yearlings selling from 270 to 314. Feeder steers and heifers were firm to 5 cents cheaper, with the feeder steers selling from 270 to 366. The feeder heifers sold from 268 to 332. Young cattle of the restockers were around firm with the young steers selling to 400 and the young heifers sold to 380. Ground steers were 3 to 8 cents dearer, while the ground heifers were up to 12 cents dearer. Prime ground steers sold from 282 to 308, while the prime ground heifers sold to 298. Prime heavyweight cows were 8 cents cheaper on quality, while the secondary cows were dearer. Two and three score cows sold from 150 to 255, while prime heavyweight cows sold from 240 to 270, to average 255. Bulls were dearer, selling to 253. This is David Monk reporting from Dubbo. Thanks, David. Let's go to Yas Cattle now, and with the details there, here's Graham Richard. Good afternoon. Numbers fell to only 390 due to the long weekend. Feeders and restockers were the fourth, with processors very selective. There was a good mixture of cows, including a few weaners, yearlings and growing steers. 75 cows were penned. With the exception of the two-score cows, the market sold to stronger trends. Wiener heifers lifted 25 cents, reaching 349, and the steers sold to 370. Feeder steers gained 15 at the better end. The medium weights reached 346, and heavyweights 328. Medium weight feeder heifers gained 17, 270 to 298, with restockers paying between 300 and 307. Prime grown steers were firm, 275 to 291. The grown heifers were similar, 232 to 283. The leaner two-score cows fell 30 cents, 200 to 240. Prime heavy cows lifted 6 to 7 cents, 250 to 279, with euro-infused cows reaching 281. And this has been Graham Richard. And that's the market information for today. No markets uh, tomorrow, of course, because of the uh, public holiday. So uh, just bear that in mind. It's uh, coming up to one minute to one. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. But the Country Hour will be back tomorrow, so uh, tune in for that. And also a reminder to, I'll give you that uh, biosecurity hotline number about the fire ants again. I uh, haven't given it out that much, so I just thought I'd better give it out again. The biosecurity hotline, if you do see any, uh, what you suspect to be fire ants, you should give them a call. 1-800-680-244. The number for the New South Wales biosecurity hotline, one 800 680 Two double four. If you see what you suspect may be fire ants, it's coming up to news time.